You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Sophia Javaj, and I'm joined with Apex director and professor of history, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Alfred Runty. I'm turning it over to you, Ryan. Thanks, Sophia. I appreciate it. So we're excited to have you here, Al. And what we always like to do as we begin is just kind of a very quick, you know, how we got to now. So so tell us a little bit about yourself, what your scholarly work is, and uh, we'll, we'll move on from there. Well, I... Uh started out in my academic career with a PhD from the University of California in Santa Barbara. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the national parks. And while I was at Santa Barbara, I got very interested in the role of railroads in the development of the national park system and followed it all through my academic and public history career. I've worked with corporations on their restorations such as the Grand Canyon Railway and Holland America's McKinley Explorer. And I must say I'm looking forward to helping the good people of Cedar City as they try to bring trains back here to Utah and to serve the national parks that were originally opened 100 years ago by the Union Pacific Railroad via the Utah Parks Company, which is the reason I'm here for these last couple of days as we kick off, or you kick off, I should say, this wonderful centennial year. Yeah, so I think it's interesting, if, you, if we look at your, your work, uh, you begin, I mean, most if not all of your scholarship has been really about the national parks and, and railroads. Uh, some really important books, you know, National Parks, The American Experience, where you kind of posit the idea that, that na- the idea of national parks is truly an American thing, one of the few things that really are truly American, not inspired by other other uh, countries or other, other entities. Uh, you've written a lot about trains, specifically not only as methods of discovering the national parks and the wilderness, but also as, as a method to heal the earth, if you will, right? Allies of the Earth is another book. You spent some time as a seasonal ranger in Yosemite, right? And, and, and pretty much wrote the seminal history of of that national park as well. So what what gravitates you to this? I mean, when you were a young scholar in his, in, in history and graduate school thinking about what you wanted to do, why why these things, trains and national parks, why do they resonate with you? Well, to be honest, they go all the way back to my mother. My father died in 1958 of a heart attack. He died young. He was only 60. He was a veteran of World War I in the trenches on the German side, had emigrated to the United States and met my mother. And after only 14 years of marriage, he was gone. And my mother said to my brother August and me, I want to take you west to see the national parks. This was 1959. And my mother had another reason to go. Her father had homesteaded in South Dakota before selling the homestead to move to New York State. And so in 1959, she loaded us in our Bel Air station wagon with four retreaded tires and three sleeping bags and air mattresses and a Coleman stove and an old tent. And off we went for six weeks. 
She drove 10,000 miles all the way from New York State out to California and back visiting. We visited the Badlands, Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Yellowstone, Tetons, Crater Lake, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, came back home, and it just stuck. Uh, it, was, it was a really memorable experience, and watching the Rangers give those wonderful evening programs, I said, I want to do that. I want to be a ranger and have one of those funny hats. And as you know, you're 12 years old, you have your dreams, but this was a dream that really stuck. And as I got into high school and college, I started writing about the parks and found out there wasn't a lot of literature. So I wrote my master's thesis on the origins of national parks and conservation and found out a lot of the motivation was Niagara Falls, what had happened to that great natural wonder in New York State. And uh, I just continued on through graduate school and finding more and more new things to say. It's, it's kind of wonderful in a way that you find people that have not talked a lot about your topic. I was very interested in the Civil War during the centennial 1961 very interested and read practically everything I could get my hands on about the Civil War. But then I realized I'm competing with a lot of people who have already said a lot of good things. What more do I have to say about Robert E. Lee? But there was a lot more to say about Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and the people behind those wonderful ideas. So I made that my doctoral dissertation translated readily into my book and I just kept going from there. After being a ranger in Yosemite, the concessionaire tried to censor me for saying things that he thought were injurious to the company. And I thought, I ought to write a book about this. What's, what's he worried about? <laughs> and I wrote a book about Yosemite. And I found out about trains because nobody was talking about them. They were all talking about John Muir, and, but they weren't talking about the real people behind the parks in a lot of ways. And so it all came quite naturally, effortlessly. But yeah. it wasn't easy doing all the research because it had to be all original research. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because my 12-year-old uh, my dream was not to become a park ranger, oh. but to fly the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so, which, uh, you know, we're a ways away from that. I guess not at Disneyland, right? I guess I did fly it at Disneyland. So... Interestingly, when you when you go to visit these national parks first, you're you're part of that great kind of migration of 1950s car campers, uh, and not not trains, right? In the right. 1940s and 50s, really is the golden era of of the stream the streamliners and the big trains. And I want to talk about that here in a minute. But what what is it about the the, the journey of to these national parks that, that is so enchanting for, for many people? Well, it's what I call the rite of passage. And, and the more I think about it, it was a chance for redemption. It was not easy growing up the son of a World War I veteran who did not want to talk about his wounds or his pain. And frankly, my father was an alcoholic. And that we now understand was post-traumatic stress syndrome. We now know what the cause of it, but we didn't talk about it then. So he passed away and you're in the car and you're 
seeing new scenery and you get the feeling that your life is all ahead of you and you can make of it what you want. And my mother was an avid reader, so she knew a lot of stories. She knew a lot of places to go. And it was a healing time. And my brother and I needed to heal because we'd had a tough childhood growing up under those circumstances. We had a nuclear family, but we did not have what I would say is a very united family because of all the problems that we, that we had from my father's war experiences. So suddenly we were free of him in a good way, not a bad way. We missed him, but we were free of his illness and we could start to grow ourselves. And just to go to these parks and see these beautiful places and say, wow, I'm a part of this. And where did this come from? And I, I was also interested in the geology and the biology. And the rangers then had such superb programs on the geology, the biology, not just the history. And you began to realize that you were living on a pretty special place of the planet. When a ranger could point to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and say to you, now you do realize there are rocks down there more than a billion years old. And I'm saying to myself, I'm 12 years old. I could hardly get my head wrapped around a billion. And it was one of those kinds of things that so many American families have done. And in whatever way they've discovered it, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, or whether they go to the parks to work, as you have discovered in all of your writings about the Utah Parks Company, however they do, there's something about it. You realize you're part of something larger than yourself your problems are minuscule compared to the problems of the world. And you learn to become a positive force and not just a negative force. You learn that you can make a difference in the world. I fear that today so much of that dream is gone from our technological society. Kids are th thinking now in 30-second sound bites rather than in Oh, let's take a great vacation. Or when they go to Zion, let's get to Angel's Landing. Let's, let's do something strenuous. Let's show that we're physically fit. Well, that's important, but it's also nice to sit on a rock and just look at it for an hour. And that's what we learned to do. We learned to look, and we learned to think, and we learned some wonderful things. And I would hope that this rite of passage would continue in the in the years ahead. Yeah, I think that's interesting when I when I teach about the history of the national parks, the idea that that we we preserve what we value and we value what we preserve, right? And so and that's a very challenging thing because then when we preserve things, we really have to question why. And I think that's part of the sitting in the rock and and and, and meditating and pondering that you are part of something greater and it's not just greater in the sense of a religious thing right but but or, or in the natural world but but part of something greater as an american institution right right i mean i think today's world we don't think about the greatness of this country and and being a part of that sometimes we feel like we have to apologize for that as opposed to really celebrate the fact that that while we have done some pretty horrible things, we've also really shaped the world in a positive way. And I think national parks are part of that. And you get that experience by, by being there. Because I think that's it, right? You're just being. Right. 
And part of the advantage that I had in 1959 was being educated by the World War II generation, being educated by men and women who had seen 15 years of suffering, starting with the Great Depression and then moving through World War II. And they knew what they wanted and they knew what worked and what didn't work. And they knew that socialism didn't work and they knew that dictatorship didn't work and they knew that empire didn't work but they knew that the United States worked. And it may not have worked perfectly. Right around the corner, when we got home, was the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. But as bad as it was in terms of the turmoil, there was still a positive feeling deep down in, this, in the heart of America that we would get through it, we would do the right thing. And by 1964, the Congress had passed the Civil Rights Act. By the way, on Republican votes, which a lot of people don't understand. And it passed the Civil Rights Act, and we were on our way. We started to think a lot more about civil rights and, and equality and equality of opportunity, and we, we got through it. Then came Vietnam. That was another trial, but we got through that because we had a sense of mission and a sense of accomplishment. I really worry now that we're not going to get through some of the things we're seeing today because now we're so divided, we've forgotten what sacrifice is. I'm sorry, you know, being called a name is not the same as having 52 German machine guns firing at you as you're trying to get ashore on Omaha Beach. It's just not the same thing. Right, I think that we, when we think about this in terms of national parks and other kinds of things, we, we often confuse things that are rights with things that are privileges and things with our privileges that, that are actually rights, right? And I think that, that that is where we look at these visionaries who began to to preserve these things. And, and it's easy for us to say, well, these were all economic decisions. You know, we had Megan Kate Nelson on here a few months ago talking about uh, saving Yellowstone and Jay Cook and, and these kinds of things. And right. not in a, not in a in a mercenary way, but we have the cynical nature to say, well, all the railroads wanted to do with these national parks is to monetize them, is, is to use them for money. But I think, you know, there's an idea of preservation and conservation, which are two different things I know, but, but a vision behind these spaces, because we know that if we don't preserve them for everyone, they will become someone's. And here's the interesting thing about the parks, which I only learned as I got deeper into the research, including the annual reports and the annual financial reports of the concessionaires. They had to report to the chief clerk of the Secretary of the Interior, the profit loss statements. You know, you can't make any money open only 90 days a year. You can't build these huge lodges and these infrastructures and make any money being open July, June, July, and August. And one of the great stories is Louis W. Hill who opened up Glacier for the Great Northern. He was the president of the Great Northern Railway. And he thought he was going to, you know, make a decent profit on Glacier. And uh, a forest fire would spring up and everybody would want to go home because the park was filled with smoke and his lodges would be half empty in July or August. And there's one story where he goes up to the chief ranger and says, why aren't you putting that fire out? It's costing me business. 
and the ranger answers him and says, we're trying as hard as we can, Mr. Hill, but it is summer and it is fire season, not just tourist season. The railroads hope to make their profit in prestige. The fact that you would say, if you were a family, a shipper, and you had gone to a beautiful park experience, and they would say, you know, I should ship my fruit, or I should ship my desk or furniture, whatever it is, on the Union Pacific Railroad. And they also hope to make it by making sure their trains were full in the summertime. But as you know, because you know the history far better than I of the Utah Parks Company, they spun off all these subsidiaries so they wouldn't have to tell the stockholders they were losing money on Zion and losing money on Glacier, losing money on Yellowstone. And they were. They were losing money. But they did it out of pride and because they wanted to be well spoken of in business circles by their colleagues. And that's why they ran those beautiful dining cars with the heavy silver and the linen. They didn't make any profit on those either. But if Alfred Hitchcock made a movie called North by Northwest and showed somebody taking the 20th Century Limited, meaning Cary Grant to Chicago, that was worth a lot to the railroad and all the other trains whose seats and bedroom berths they filled. Yeah, so we're going to take our first break. And as we've talked before, and those who've listened to our show know that we ask our guests to provide us with a list of songs to, to play during these breaks something that means something to them. So the first song we're going to play for this break is called 500 Miles from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that song? Well, I used to sing it and play it. <laughs> and I grew up on Peter, Paul, and Mary and the Kingston Trio. And, and when I was in high school, we had coffee houses, these places very different from Starbucks. You went into the coffee house and there was somebody with a guitar or a banjo and a bass and they wanted to play folk music. There was a big folk music craze of the 1960s and I just fell in love with these, with Peter, Paul and Mary. Saw them in concert once. Peter, Paul and Mary also played at the uh, Lincoln Memorial at the Civil Rights March of Martin Luther King in August of 1963. and. They got under our skin, and everybody who was anybody with a guitar and a voice in high school was playing all these songs 55 and 60 years ago. All right, so let's hear 500 Miles by Peter, Paul, and Mary. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles. You Two, Lord, I'm three. 
That was 500 Miles by Peter, Paul, and Mary. You are listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Sophie. Al, I'd like you to to paint a picture for us of I I want to go on a vacation. I'm living in Chicago in 1953, and I'm taking the train. I'm taking the streamliner out to to visit Zion and Bryce and those kinds of things, and then maybe heading out to L.A. What t- Paint me the picture. What's happening here? Well, actually, let me make it a little shorter trip. But when I actually took uh, at the time, my mother won this uh, radio show contest called Cinderella Weekend, in which she had an all-expenses-paid trip on the Phoebe Snow, which was the streamliner of the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western from Buffalo to New York. We lived in Binghamton, about 200 miles. And um, she won that contest. And so just... Before Christmas 1952, my father, brother, mother, and I boarded the Phoebe Snow in Binghamton, New York at 2 p.m. I remember it. I was five and a half years old. And the first thing that you noticed when you boarded the train was how wonderful it smelled. It was this upholstery. It was new. It was, it was, it was just this wonderful homey smell and the big windows the big windows. My mom said, sit here by the window and we'll watch uh, all these sights go by. And we pulled out of the Binghamton station, past the big natural gas tank and out along the Susquehanna River and over the bridge on the Susquehanna River. So here's a kid looking down at the river on this railroad bridge and, and, uh, and starting into then the hill country south of Binghamton, New York. And the first thing that impressed me was the movement and the scenery, the fact that this was a kaleidoscope going by. This was, this was better than a car. First of all, because Dad didn't have to drive. He could sit there with him and enjoy the scenery right along with the rest of us. And then my mother asked the steward who came through the cars announcing that the dining car was open when we would get to the big bridge, which was the Tunkhannock Viaduct. At 240 feet high, it was at one time the largest concrete bridge in the world that was made to speed the Lackawanna Railroad faster between Buffalo and New York. It was 240 feet high, spanned this wide gaping valley, almost a mile long. And we, when we hit that, we were in the dining car and I was having a tuna sandwich. Now, if you've never been in a dining car with a big heavy tablecloth and real silverware and real sharp people who give you real top of the line service, you haven't lived. So I'm a little five-and-a-half-year-old kid, and the steward comes and sets in front of me my tuna sandwich and potato chips, and we race across that bridge, now seemingly up in the clouds. And, and I was hooked. And I did get to make a lot of those trips in the future, um, not always with that, always the best of equipment. But what the Streamline era tried to sell was the experience and the variety that you got on a train. The fact that when you got bored sitting in your chair car, you could then go up to the dining car. And in the dining car, seating is by open seat. It's, it's random. You don't get to say, well, I don't want to sit with those folks. 
You sit wherever the steward puts you and the waiter takes your order. So you're constantly meeting people. So as you would have left Chicago or Buffalo or wherever you were going on a streamliner, and the minute that you decided you wanted something to eat, you'd start talking to people. You'd start meeting people. And you'd start saying, well, where are you from? Where are you going? What are you doing? And then somebody would say, well, we're, we're, we're on our way to Yellowstone National Park. We're going to take the train up the backside from Salt Lake Ogden and come in West Yellowstone. And we're going to be on this train here for two nights. And uh, uh, the morning of our second day out, uh, third day out, actually, we'll, we'll be in Yellowstone National Park. You say, wow, that's neat. I didn't know you could do that. Some of the greatest conversations I've had are with people on trains because you, you again, it's random seating. And, um, and then, of course, the streamliners in the West especially had the dome cars. So you could go up in the dome car, and the way that was described, look up, look down, look all around. You had a 360-degree view of everything. You're not just looking out one window. You can look to your left or look to your front or your rear and lots of glass and lots of scenery and there's nothing quite like it. The only thing that you have to resolve to yourself is it's going to take me some time. And this idea, as once was put by a friend, you know, um, I don't have the time or, you know, I need to save time. <laughs> well, it's your life. What are you saving? Enjoy it. And so um, the, the streamliners sold all those experiences. And then the arrival when you came to the parks of uh, step off at Glacier Park Station, and you're right there in Glacier, step off at West Yellowstone, you're in Yellowstone, step off at, at uh, El Tovar, Grand Canyon, you're right there at Grand Canyon. They sold that they would take you right to the park experience. And, and you had this sense that it was, it was magic. It really was magical. And that's how they sold it. And it would be a, um, uh, I, I've often gone Pullman, and that's kind of fun because your bed pulls down out of the wall and you climb into bed. Remember that scene in North by Northwest where she hides Cary Grant in the upper berth from the cops? You may all remember seeing that movie, and I'd say, I always say to my wife, no way could she have gotten him up into that booth and berth and then pushed it closed. But the beds came out of the wall, and, and so your living room by day became your bedroom by night, and, and there's nothing like the clickety-clack and rocking of the rails, and it's, it's just special. You know, in an airplane, it's buckle up, turbulence, it's, you know... We didn't sell you leg room. We sold you transportation. They, they give you peanuts and sometimes pretzels and, and uh, stale Coca-Cola. And they, that's what they call surface now. But the I, railroads sold service. And I think that's interesting because the railroads, I mean, they have this period. And, of course, they're, they're challenged by the rise of the automobile after World War II, right, because people now want more convenience and and we again we sell time because the the road trip takes time as right. well right we don't you know many nowadays we want to go from point a to point b quickly but oftentimes you would stop at diners or right. little lookouts and things and then of course they're challenged even more by commercial airline travel right right that, that it becomes really about 
speed that it's not about the journey as right. much as it is about the destination. Right. Whereas my thinking is that train travel is really as much about the journey as it is about the destination. Right. And, of course, the irony is that the train can get you across the country in three days. The car will take you five. Then why are you enamored with the car, which takes you two days longer? Well, because you think you're independent. It's sold as freedom. It's sold as you can come and go as you please. You can also fall asleep, as Chevy Chase does in that wonderful movie Family Vacation, where he falls asleep and goes off the, off the freeway. Fortunately, nothing happens to him. But the, the, the reason that the car is so compelling is not time and just freedom. It's that it's a one purchase of your transportation. You buy the car and you own it. So now if you take it to Yellowstone or to Grand Canyon, yes, you will pay for the gas. And yes, you will pay for the wear and tear, but you won't have to pay for the fixed cost of the car itself one more time. When you buy a car, and then on top of that, now you buy a railroad ticket because you don't want to take your car, drive your own car, now you're paying the fixed cost of another entity. So people begin to say, well, let me see, it would cost me you know, $1,000 round trip to go to Yellowstone on the Union Pacific from Chicago, Illinois, or I can take the car that I own that I've already paid $2,000 for, but I won't have to pay that again. I can drive it to Yellowstone and back, and then the very next day I can go to work with the car. And uh, I'm not out the $1,000 to the Union Pacific Railroad. I'm out my time, but I'll have to spend that too on the train, and I'm out my gas money, but I'm not out the fixed cost of the vehicle. So it often becomes more economic than time because the train beats the car hands down for comfort and safety. The automobile is, uh, is, is Russian roulette on the highways, as you know, and the train beats the car hands down for scenery because you're going through the beautiful countryside. You're, you're not on a big interstate highway battling with the trucks and having to read all the billboards, and, uh, but people still are sold on the car because they think, well, at least, I, at least in the car I'm free. And, and, and there is some competition there for a while. I mean, you've got this kind of three levels of transportation, right? right. Car, train, and, and airline. And they, they compete in the advertising world. Right. You've shown me an advertisement about, uh, about between planes and trains. What, what was that about the smoke plume? and? Well, yeah, the railroad would always say, let's get back down to earth. You can't see anything from 35,000 feet. And, of course, the airlines counter by having the captain or co-pilot or one of the flight attendants get on and say, oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, look out your window now. We're flying over the Grand Canyon. Or look out your window. That's, uh, 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 you know, Crystal Peak or whatever you look at or we're doing that. They don't even do that anymore. They don't, they don't even do that. They, they get on and they say, thank you for flying United or thank you for flying Alaska. Don't, oh, by the way, do you want to buy our credit card? <laughs> they don't even talk about the, the scenery anymore, but they used to. The most beautiful view I have ever had of Crater Lake was in a Q400 on Alaska Airlines. About five years ago, my wife and I are flying back from Reno. And on some of the flight pads, you go right over, the, right over Crater Lake. And it's a, you're, you're lower, you're at 24,000 feet, not 35,000 feet. 
and we're flying over Crater, and I'm looking down, and I say, oh, my God, it's Crater Lake. And it was gorgeous, rimmed with snow and as blue as blue, and it was fantastic. And I said, I've never seen a more beautiful view of Crater Lake, I must admit, than I am now from the air. Captain never mentioned it. And, of course, if that would be me, I would say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to do a circle here <laughs> so you can look out the window and see this beautiful thing. But the railroads took you to the beautiful things and advertised them. And the car did try to do that. And, of course, they did advertise Yellowstone and the beautiful things. But it's always, it's funny that you mentioned that. It's always at a distance. You know, the, 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 what's in the front of you is the car. Whereas on the railroad ads, they're, they're showing you the view outside the window. They're not just showing you a picture of the train. And in many ways, these, these streamliners were, were things of beauty and scenery oh, themselves. Yeah. People would come out to watch these trains come into town or come by. If you think about the image of those big, bright, yellow Union Pacific trains, uh, the city of Los Angeles and, and these other kinds of trains named after big cities. And that kind of takes us into our, our second break. On our second song with one of my favorite songs of all time that you chose, not knowing this, The City of New Orleans by, by Arlo Guthrie. Can you, you want to say a little something about it? Well, I um, sang it with Arlo Guthrie at Union Station in the April of 1979 during a protest march uh, against Amtrak. He came to town with the band Shenandoah and uh, invited everybody to sing along with him. In what is now the restored Union Station in Washington, D.C. And then we went out for uh, a little bit of dinner afterwards. So it's one of my favorite songs sung by a gentleman who really has heart and soul into this, uh, this great song. And the city of New Orleans, we should say, he's not singing about the city of New Orleans. He's, he's singing, singing about, about the, the train. train. So, all right, the city of New Orleans with by Arlo Guthrie. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central, Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors, twenty-five sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey Train pulls out at Kankakee and rolls along past houses, farms, and fields. Passing trains that have no name, and freight yards full of old black men, and the graveyards of the rusted automobiles. Good morning, America, how are you? Said, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. Dealing card games with the old man in the club car. Any a point ain't no one keeping score Pass the paper bag that holds the bottle 
the sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers write their father's magic carpets made of steel. Mothers with their babes asleep rocking to the gentle beat and the rhythm of the rails is all they feel. Good morning, America, how are you? Said, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone five hundred miles when the day is done. Cars in Memphis, Tennessee. Halfway home, and we'll be there by morning. Through the Mississippi darkness, rolling down to the sea. But all the towns and people seem to fade into a bad dream, and the steel rail still ain't heard the Conductor sings his songs again. The passengers will please refrain. This train got to disappear in railroad blues. Good night, America. How are you? Said, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train that called the city. I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. was the city of new orleans by arlo guthrie you were listening to the apex radio hour here on ksuu thunder 91.1 i'll turn it back to you ryan thank you sophie so we've been talking about the 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 vision of train travel and and we've we've i would ask our if people are interested you know al has been here a couple of years earlier and spoke with us on the apex radio hour so please revisit our webpage. Uh, and and listen to that podcast again. It was a little different uh, idea of national parks and those kinds of things. But I want to talk about trains. You know, they have this golden golden age, and I know the trains coming into Cedar and, you know, the Union Pacific had lobbied more and more for better roads for their buses, right? Because the train, the buses would come in. And, of course, once the better roads came in, people quit taking the train. They just drove their own their own cars. And, and eventually, and correct me if I'm wrong, the federal government says to the train companies, look, we'll haul people and you haul freight. And that's kind of how Amtrak gets started. Is that – I know it's probably more complex than that. But. Well, yeah, it is more complex. Um, at the end of World War II, we still had, as a country, 15,000 intercity passenger trains in the United States down from our peak of about 20,000 in 1927, just before the Depression. And um, they they were common carriers. They 
pick up passengers. And, and of course, the big thing that the railroads did in that era was carry the mail. So you might have a passenger train with eight or ten cars, but it might also have three, four, or five mail cars, and also a railway post office where mail was sorted. Remember, we didn't have a thing called zip code then. The people who worked in the post office actually had to know how to read and write and spell and know the cities and know where mail was going. And that was all sorted in the railway post office. I remember my friend's father who worked for the post office telling me in 1960 when we got zip code, there goes the post office system. Because now you could teach a person just to key in one of the five numbers. They didn't know have, to, have to know how to read or write. And then the computer would direct the mail, not the train or not the person on the railway post office car. So the post office department started dropping mail cars. When he started dropping mail cars, marginally profitable passenger trains became unprofitable, and the railroads went to what was then the Interstate Commerce Commission and asked to have these trains discontinued. And what happens when you pull circuits out of any system, you start to lose versatility. You start to lose flexibility. So Binghamton, New York had 12 intercity trains when I was a kid growing up, morning, afternoon, and night. Suddenly, you have to look closely at the schedule because the morning trains may be gone because there's not enough mail cars and you only got maybe an afternoon train and an evening train, and people start having to make choices uh, from, from a more limited schedule. And the government says, well, well, you know, this is good, because after all, we're building the interstate highway system now. And the railroads say back, well, yeah, you're building the interstate highway system, but that's also going to carry all the freight, and that's also going to carry trucks, and that's also going to cut into our business. You're leaving us basically with nothing but uh, coal and grain and gravel and the heavy commodities. And that went on all during my childhood and high school and college and, and, and graduate school years until finally we, we got Amtrak in 1971. We can at least save these passenger trains on a very limited schedule. But who wants to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning in Kansas City and take the Southwest Chief? Used to have 50 trains, now you got one. And so then the railroads say, you see, passenger trains don't work. No, they work just fine. But there have to be enough of them, and they have to have enough versatility. And the government gave that all to basically the trucking industry and the airlines. When you're up there flying at 35,000 feet, it's not just the people that have boarded that plane. That hold, other than your luggage, is filled with mail and perishables, uh, the, the salmon that come down to Seattle from Alaska are coming in the hold of the 737s of Alaska Airlines. The railroads lose all that, that, um, that other than full load carry to the other carriers, to the airlines and to the trucking lines. And so what saved the railroads for freight was the container business. Suddenly when we shipped all of our jobs to China, which we did, Let's admit it, 90% of our manufacturing still in China. Then you got to get that all back to the United States. And now the truck doesn't carry enough. Just one or two containers doesn't amortize out. But the trains that now go through here with 150, 200 cars and four or five engines and just two uh, people in the cab staffing the train, you know, it, it pencils out. But the, but the passenger train died 
mostly because we decided as a country we really didn't need it anymore. We had airlines, we had highways, and the passenger train was frivolous. And that was a big mistake because, because Europe knew better. And here was the interesting thing. We rebuilt the German railroads and the French railroads and the Polish railroads and all of those railroads after World War II under the Marshall Plan. Well, we forgot about our railroads. And, and the future of, of, of the train, you know, as we think about it now, are, are the, the tubes and the, you know, we're not thinking about taking them as, uh, as, as scenic issues. Right. We're thinking about faster ways to unclog the freeways. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about speed as the be-all and the end-all. Well, the whole so-called green energy, renewable energy movement is, is, is another repudiation of railroads because it's the railroad that works 100% of the time to reduce carbon, to reduce the need for fossil fuels. You can run them on electric, as you do, and, but you can run them on hydro. Swiss run all their trains on hydropower. But we're, with, with the so-called Green New Deal, we're now telling ourselves that the secret to saving America is to having tens of thousands of square miles of wind farms and solar collection plants. But they don't work when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. Trains work 100% of the time. Why aren't we bringing back our railroads? Why aren't we saying to people, don't buy an electric car, get on a train? And again, it all comes back down to that love affair with the automobile and our false belief, and it is false, that it's really not that expensive to own a car. You know, remember when we were kids, we all offered to pay for the gas. Well, who's paying for the, the car and the tires and the insurance and, and the licensing and all the rest of it? And the gas, and by the, the way, to the my gas. kids, and the gas. And now it's going to be, who's paying for the charge? <laughs> yeah. So I think it's interesting. So, so trains really, I mean, that, the title of the book, Allies of the Earth, I mean, if we think about it, trains really are, are part of that solution, right? I mean, I keep thinking about my own travels of, of heading up to see my parents up north and how easy it would be to hop on a train, you know, and, right. and, and head up there. But, but you're right, it really is a time issue because, you know, I get in my car and I drive. I don't have to stop at Parowan and Beaver and Fillmore and, you know, Kenosh and Holden like right. a, train, a train would. You have well, a to, local would, yeah. The express train would probably go from Las Vegas to Caliente to, to, um, to Lund and then up to Salt Lake. But you're right, the local trains were stopping at, at all the stations. And then they had the mail cars. And, of course, that's when we had newspapers that were really on print. And they were thrown out of the baggage car and, and, uh, and sold. I was on a mail train once with 14 cars and just uh, one passenger car where I was. But that's all gone. And when you take away all that circuitry, you go down to one train a day and you ask it to live entirely off of its passengers, not off of mail or, or less than carload freight or any of these other opportunities. I mean, Federal Express. You know, the, the railroads used to have that. It used to be called the Railway Express Agency. They had all the overnight. When my father died, he died in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and my mom had to bring his casket up to Binghamton, 230 miles, and his casket was put on the Railway Express car, the refrigerated Railway Express car, and brought up on the Phoebe Snow to Binghamton, and then the hearse met the Phoebe Snow at Binghamton. My mom paid a dollar a mile for that, $230. 
a dollar a mile in 1958. That was a lot of money. But think what that brought to the train. Think what that brought. It made the Phoebe Snow a profitable train to have that extra service. And when that all goes in the 60s, then the passenger trains are truly, on the ledger sheets, unprofitable. And then, of course, the railroads, wanting to get rid of their passengers at that point, started charging everything to them. So <laughs> and that the doesn't help either. and everything got charged to them. So let's uh, let's take our last break here, and we're going to listen to a song that uh, from from a, a group that I have come to really know and love, the Kingston Trio. Uh, Where have all the flowers gone? Do you want to say anything about this? Well, of course, the the 1960s were the era of the Vietnam War, and this was another song that my pals and I used to sing a lot at church and and uh, at college because we were losing a lot of friends in the Vietnam War and. And this poignantly tells us that, um, you know, it's better to stay alive than go back to where the flowers are. Where Have All the Flowers Gone by the Kingston Trio. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone long time ago? Where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone long? Where have all the young girls gone long time ago? Where have all the young girls gone? Gone to young men, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young men gone long? When will they ever learn? 
Where Have All the Flowers Gone by the Kingston Trio. You're listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. All right, all right, all right. It's time for our final segment here on uh, the show, the What's Bringing You Joy segment. We are so thankful, Al, that you were here with us today. And as we, we have mentioned, we have one final, I have one final question for you, and it is this. Dr. Al Runty, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Well, it's uh, neither watching, reading, or listening to. Uh, as you know, I live in Seattle, a very dark and dreary city from the months of uh, October <laughs> through March. And my wife and I are back in the garden. We are back outside and getting ready for our spring flowers. I plant daylilies. I have a lovely daylily garden and we have lots of uh, uh, roses and other things that we really enjoy and so that's what's bringing us joy when we go inside at night or on those dark and rainy days which we still get a lot of in Seattle we are watching the new Perry Mason on HBO which I find fascinating very well I like courtroom dramas and this is the Perry Mason when he gets his start back in the 1930s and it's and it's really well done. But uh, we also like to read. My wife likes to read. I'm reading, I just finished reading The Battle of Gettysburg by Mr. Gozello. I think I've got that right, do I? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a wonderful history. I've always been interested in Civil War history. And she's always reading detective mysteries. So those are the things that bring us joy at our current time. And our cat, George. We cannot forget George, who make sure that we are serving his every need and he and he and he brings us lots of joy by showing us how skilled he is at that that uh, that Perry Mason season 1 was good but boy it was D A R K yeah it was uh it, but it was i i was it had me gripped from the yeah. beginning to end yeah. all right my good friend Reese Whitaker what are you currently watching reading or listening to that is bringing you joy so I was telling Evan during one of the breaks that I recently watched the, the Mario movie, and it's pretty good. If you want a good 90-minute, really short, just, just have fun. The story is not that great, so I recommend that. But I wanted to share with you guys something that is really bringing me joy, but it's not a watch, reading, or listening. I'm, in, I'm currently in the process of scheduling a job interview in the audio-video department for the Las Vegas Raiders. Oh! So I wanted to share that with you guys. Cool. Cool. Peaches, 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 huh? <laughs> yeah. How exciting is that? It's a good well, movie. Good. Uh, hopefully their, uh, their, uh, their gain will be our significant loss, but, uh, but good for you. Thank you. Well done. All right. Uh, student producer Evan Miller, what are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Um, so the other night I watched a movie that um, brought me more joy than I expected. It was The Peanut Butter Falcon, um, and it's basically a movie about how Shia LaBeouf helps a kid with Down syndrome become a professional wrestler. So it was a really interesting plot, and it actually it, it was a lot more enjoyable, heartwarming than I thought it was going to be. So I liked that. Cool. Now, before we very quickly go on, I just need to let you know, both to Sophie, Reese, and Evan, who are significantly younger than me and very significantly younger than Al, that uh, you need to spend this weekend watching North by Northwest. Yes. The great Alfred Hitchcock classic. 
with Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint. So put that on your list and watch it, and I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, it, of course, this is our last podcast yeah. for uh, for a while because this is our, our last episode of this season until we meet again in the fall. So let's talk to my good friend and producer, Sophie Javage. What are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? Okay, so... I swear that every time we get on here, I bring up something that I've done with my family. But what brings me joy is my connection with the people around me. And I went home for Easter, and I love what my parents and my family will share share with me. And um, my mom had a migraine, so we were watching a lot of movies over the weekend, you know, so we could spend time with her and stuff. And... I like to think that I've cultured my younger brother in the romantic comedy world of movies. <laughs> and they recently put How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days on Netflix, which has Matthew McConaughey in it. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> and that has just been something I've been able to share with my family because they don't really like rom-coms, but that's my favorite genre to watch. And they bear with me and they'll watch it with me. So that is something that we shared over the weekend. And that has brought me a lot of joy that they'll always give me flack for it. But they secretly enjoy the movie Mm because they'll sit there and quote it the whole rest of the weekend. So that is what is currently bringing me joy. Okay, Ryan. What is currently... Oh, whoa. Let me rephrase myself. What are you currently watching, reading, or listening to that is bringing you joy? I am a little bit late to the table on this one, but as you know, my my son just returned from his LDS mission, and so I had saved a little bit of the Star Wars stuff that we've enjoyed, and we've currently been watching Andor, which I have found to be really, really compelling. For those of you who have watched it, we just finished the episode where they had had the eye and they just, you know, had left the thing and with the big shuttle craft, and it's very exciting. About halfway through, but but Andor is uh, is a good story, and that is what's bringing me joy. And I would like to say this: I'm I'm grateful that that Al is here for our last episode. He has been a mentor of mine, uh, and I will tell you this: I'm not sure is this your last episode with us too, Reese? Yeah, it will be. Yeah, so I want to know that uh, this has been. An amazing team. We've had an amazing year, I think, together. And I'm hoping that Sophie and Evan will be back with us again in the fall. Please look at our our podcasts and our for, for former episodes. And uh, we'll be getting some of these up soon over the summer. And uh, thank you, Reese, for for really enhancing this uh, this team. You've been you've been exciting and and talented and skilled. And we are very grateful for you here don't mention it i appreciate the opportunity to to do something different uh thank you for listening to the apex radio we will go out with al's last song uh, an american classic this land is your land by peter paul and mary al do you want to say anything very quickly well just one last thought because you mentioned the raiders i spent two days on the train with john madden sick on the california zephyr in 1983 now what airplane of course he hated airplanes what airplane could you meet one of the greatest coaches and mentors in American football history? And we actually had a lot of quality time. So I saw this land, my land, his land, your land from the windows of the California Zephyr in May of 1983 with John Madden. All right. Our last song, This Land is Your Land by Peter, Paul, and Mary. This land is your land. This land is my land. 
from California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. I roamed and I rambled and I followed my footsteps to the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts and all around me. Her voice was singing This land was made for you and me This land is your land This land is my land From California To the New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me That endless skyway I saw below me Those golden valleys This land was made for you and me This land is your land This land is my land From California To the New York Island From the Redwood Forest the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me As the sun was shining And I was strolling And the wheat fields Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us every Thursday at 3 p.m. right here on Thunder 91. We would love for you to come to our events on campus. For more information, check out suu.edu apex. Until next time, that was the Apex Hour on Thunder 91.1.